Hey, podcast family, I've got an interesting subject to cover today. And it's hot off the press because this actually has not officially come out yet. This will come out on October 2023 in the Gray Journal under clinical opinions, all right? But I do have to be very clear and very, very upfront and transparent here. We're going to be talking about low-dose aspirin therapy in pregnancy. And if your first thought is, old news, we've known that. We've known that for a long time. (laughs) Yes, but the information keeps evolving. So let me ask you this as we prepare our episode. Is 81 milligrams a day, the current dose recommended in the U.S., Is that sufficient or should it be higher? What is the data with 150 or 162 milligrams? This is a fast moving target and we're going to cover this in this episode. Plus, even though the current stance from the college from ACOG is that while there is some data on the prevention of preterm birth, um, we still need more data uh, to justify it for that indication. But as we always say, medicine moves real fast and that data is also evolving. Wow. So we've got lots to cover, but here's the big transparency and have to be very careful here. Right now, the ACOG Obstetric Care Consensus Committee, which I am a member of, I'm very proud of that, very honored to be part of that because somebody gave me that opportunity, is right now in draft in doing a revision of the previous committee opinion that's already been out and published by the college, all right? That was a low-dose aspirin use in pregnancy. That was committee opinion 743. Uh, We've got several things that we're going to talk about in this uh, episode, including the last ACOG practice advisory, which was December 2021, that came off the heels of the U.S. Preventative Service Task Force expansion of criteria Uh, Basically, expanding the moderate risk to include uh, black race and lower socioeconomic status. All right. So those have been the recent releases from the college. But right now, ACOG, the OB clinical care consensus is redoing the draft on low dose aspirin in pregnancy. So I want everyone to hear me right now. I am not giving out any of that data because that is confidential and proprietary. However, and here's the big disclosure. However, a lot of that data is very similar, at least the concepts are, to what this clinical opinion is in the Gray Journal, again, coming out in October. So as point of reference, we're taping this September the 26th, uh, 2023, so we're a couple of days uh, ahead of, of release. Um, and, and so I'm, I got to be very clear, I'm not giving away any proprietary information from the college. Yes, we help review that, we help contribute to that document. But that is coming out at a separate time. And I don't actually know if they're going to agree or disagree with a lot of clinical opinions because a lot of that goes to committee vote. And so it's not one person. It's all of of the people on the obstetric care consensus, which I'm a member of, to say, yes, I think what this is good or not good. And we're, we're in that stage of revision. But what is definitely known is that the current committee opinion definitely needs to change um, because there's all of this new data out there. So we're going to be covering key points from this clinical opinion from the Gray Journal set to come out October 2023 on low-dose aspirin. Yes, low-dose aspirin is legit. Nobody questions that. Uh, Basically, all major professional societies endorse it for the reduction of patient morbidity from preeclampsia. That's ACOG. That's NICE, the World Health Organization. That's uh, the UK's. Uh, There's a lot of different societies who say, yes, that's the way to go. What's debated is the dose 
and the other potential benefits outside of preeclampsia, mainly preterm birth, right? And then the third big question, so the one is dose, second is, is does it help with preterm birth? And then third is, um, should it just be universal? We just give it to everybody. Well, what's the, the risk is super low unless you have somebody with very sensitive uh, aspirin-induced asthma. Well, that's kind of in the committee opinion as well. And that will be addressed. I know that because I've seen the outline of the new ACOG uh, revision based on the uh, OB uh, care consensus committee. So I am not giving out, just I don't want to get in trouble. I'm not giving out any information from this new upcoming ACOG confidential draft. I am, however, reviewing the current history of it which that new document will have. And I'm also going to cover the new clinical opinion from the Gray Journal. All right, everybody good? I am not violating my oath for confidentiality. I'll be very clear because I am not getting kicked off this thing. I like being part of this committee. I'm learning a lot. It's an amazing process. You get to see how the sausage is made. Um, that's weird. Why this, How the sausage is made. That's a thing, right? How the sausage is made. That's a saying. Or did I make that up? No, that is a saying. Uh, so anyway, I will be very clear. I am not giving out any of the ACOG working draft document. All right. All right. Having said all that with the disclosure, let's get into low dose aspirin. The saga continues. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Hey, Sayla. Hey. All right, quick question. This episode, we're talking about low-dose aspirin in pregnancy, right? Yes. Okay, cool. Do we do that? Is that legit? Yes, it's legit. What is the dose of aspirin that we use? 81. For sure. That's what ACOG says. What if I told you that may be wrong? Okay, so hmm, is a good answer. So next time you're asked, why don't you do that on your oral boards? Okay, if you're being asked, why do you use 81? Hmm, nothing instills confidence. <laughs> All right, thanks, Ayled. We just went, this is a totally impromptu ring clinic together. But uh, you see how it's so reflex, right? 81 milligrams, great. But there is data, Sayla, that that may actually not be enough. So this is a hot topic right now. This is the topic uh, of, our, of our episode. Anyway, thanks for playing along. Can't wait to hear more. This new clinical opinion coming out in the Gray Journal is really nice, and it does a great job taking a look at all of the data. I I really like it. But as I've mentioned before, man, there's nothing new under the sun because there was a separate expert review in the same journal, in the Gray Journal, published just last year that has a lot of the same information. Is that wild? Now, obviously, there's some newer data in there that wasn't available February 2022 when the first expert review was out. But a lot of this data uh, was covered last year. This expert review from 2022, the title was Prevention of Preeclampsia with Aspirin. Well, that's very appropriate. But the first author listed is Daniel Rolnick. So it's just interesting. Again, nothing new under the sun because October 2023 has this uh, new uh, you know, review, clinical opinion. But it's pretty similar to the one in the same journal just one year ago. Nonetheless, it's still a very good review, and it'll be interesting to see how ACOG's OB clinical care consensus comes up with their new draft using last year's and this year's new data, because again, things evolve quickly.
I know most of you are aware of our tagline for this podcast, right? Which is medicine moves fast. But it does. I mean, like really fast. If you follow my Facebook page as well, you'll see that I posted ACOG's response to the CDC's recommendation for RSV for the vaccination uh, in pregnancy, right? So I have a podcast on the RSV vaccine. Uh, You got to go look at that, listen to that, because you're talking about how things move fast. Pfizer got that approved by the FDA. Boom, it got kicked over to the CDC. CDC uh, went to the ACIP, which is the Council on Immunization Practice. They said, yep, I think this is a good idea for pregnancy between 32 to 36 weeks. And then Friday, September the 22nd, ACOG said, hey, we unequivocally, universally accept the recommendation of ACIP. Okay. Yes, there's some maybe a little, a little, some little concerns about preterm labor uh, with the vaccine that was just kind of found like a quinky dink on the on the trial. You got to take a look at the you listen to the episode for that. And there is this little theoretical issue that if you give it at the same time of Tdap, uh, there's published evidence from 2022 that maybe decreases the immunogenicity, the immune response to pertussis. So that that's an issue. CDC right now says, hey, you can co-administer these vaccines, uh, including the COVID vaccine. Uh, it's not an issue. So it's interesting to see, even though ACOG said, yes, I, I agree with ACIP, it's good. Um, the, the true clinical practice guidance uh, the true statement, not just not just a quick little blurb, a press release from ACOG that is still uh, being drafted. All right. So you see how things move fast. We're talking about this new shot, the new vaccine getting approved. CDC saying yes. Um, ACIP going again. We stand by the CDC. We got to do this. And ACOG saying we agree with ACIP. So a lot of initials there. Uh, but to make the point, things move so fast. So if you listen to, or if you read this title, a low dose aspirin in pregnancy, and you think, I get it, 81 milligrams, fine, 12 to 28 weeks, yeah, preeclampsia, high risk, one high risk factor, two moderate risk factors. Uh, I got that. I got that. That's fine. Nothing new. No, there is a lot new because there is a concern that maybe 81 milligrams, which is what ACOG is, is endorsed for the U.S., maybe that's not enough. Uh, and that's interesting, isn't it? Because other countries like uh, through the UK, the Royal College of OBGYN recommends 150 milligrams. Um, and, or if you if you can't get 150 milligrams, which some places in the UK you can get, uh, then taking two 81 milligram tablets as a, quote, acceptable alternative, end quote. So it, it's maybe it's not right. World Health Organization, because it's looking at the entire world and says, hey, I don't know. Those are kind of specialty doses. Uh, I know that we can give 75 milligrams. Most of the world can get 75 milligrams. So we're going to stick with that one. You see, so the, the proper dose uh, is that there is no proper dose. It depends who you ask. But it does seem that the minimum is 75 to 81 milligrams and that the most effective How about that, guys? We're going to get into that in a minute. The most effective is likely above 100 milligrams. So you got to be careful because above a certain amount, above 300, now you start uh, getting into more potential side effects and fetal issues because you just want to keep the effect of aspirin. And here's the first clinical pearl. You want it to be kept as low dose because remember that at these lower dosages, which is defined as 60 to 150 slash uh, 182, okay, at that dose, you're still staying with a COX-1 inhibition. And that's what you want. Okay. 
Yeah, I think it's good to do a quick review of that because we kind of forget the basic mechanism, right? And so if you're preparing for oral boards or just somebody asks you, you've got a med student who asks you or, man, even another resident, how, how does this thing work? And Well, the short answer is, well, we don't know how all the mechanisms work. We definitely know how aspirin works because there's two cyclooxygenase isoenzymes, right? COX-1 and COX-2. Those are necessary for prostaglandin biosynthesis. COX-1 is the one that's present in the vascular endothelium, and that's one that regulates that balance between prostacyclin and thromboxane A2, all right? That regulates vascular homeostasis and platelet function. Remember, prostacyclin is a good guy here. Prostacyclin is a potent vasodilator, and it prevents platelets from aggregating and sticking. That's good, right? But thromboxane H2 is just the opposite. It's a potent vasoconstrictor and is a promoter of platelet aggregation. COX-2, on the other hand, is only expressed during exposure to some inflammation or other cytokines like infection, all right? So COX-2 is a whole different issue. But what we're looking at here on the low-dose aspirin effect on COX because it is dose-dependent. Here it is, guys. Remember this. At these lower dosages, between 60 and 150, or at max, uh, 162, 81 milligrams taken twice, at that dose, it irreversibly acetylates COX-1, all right? So that takes it out. This leads to decreased platelet synthesis of thromboxane A2 without affecting production of prostacyclin. How cool is that, all right? So if you're asked, how does low-dose aspirin work? Easy. It knocks out COX-1, and it favors the production of prostacyclin, which is the vascular good guy here, while limiting the production of the bad guy, thromboxane A2. Now, at higher dosages, aspirin affects both COX-1 and COX-2, and it inhibits all prostaglandin production. So you don't want to do that. So COX-1 and COX-2, with low-dose aspirin having its effects, predominantly between the balance of, of prostacyclin and thromboxane A2. Man, just do a search on Google, uh, MedScholar, PubMed, whatever, on low-dose aspirin in pregnancy. My goodness. I mean, there's a lot of stuff. This goes back a decade. It's a lot of material that you can get in a decade. I mean, this was first mentioned and put into print back in ACOG's bulletin on hypertension in pregnancy, the task force report from November 2013. How about that? And at that time, it called for daily low-dose aspirin administration beginning in the, quote, late first trimester, end quote, for women with a history of early-onset preeclampsia with preterm delivery before 34 weeks or for women with more than one previous pregnancy complicated by preeclampsia. That was it. You see how restrictive that was? So in 2013, they're like, hey, I, I think we got something here. Uh, if somebody's had bad outcomes because of preeclampsia uh, with preterm birth or two previous pregnancies by preeclampsia, then give it. And that was it. But then in 2014, just one year after that, right, medicine moves fast, the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force published uh, a, a revised guideline that now said, hey, you know what? Uh, why don't we include things like multifetal pregnancy, chronic hypertension, predestational diabetes, autoimmune disease, and, and that became the kind of the risk stratification. One high-risk criteria, two or more moderate, 
then go ahead and begin. And then the last update was in December of 2021, where uh, three things were added in here, all right, as part of moderate risk factors. Black race as a surrogate marker for uh, access to care, quote, structural racism, end quote. And otherwise, we just know that African-American women uh, and other minority women just have poor outcomes. So they use that as a proxy, maybe mainly for access to care. Uh, so black race in and of itself as one moderate risk factor uh, or lower socioeconomic status uh, and IVF. So once again, what started in 2013 got revised 2014. Now we're talking about 2021. And now coming out October 2023 is this current commentary raising questions that maybe we're not getting it right. And again, just to be clear, I am not giving away any proprietary info from ACOG's new OB uh, clinical care consensus guideline because that's being written. I don't even have that yet. Okay. So, so that, that to be clear, I am not giving away. That's all confidential. That is, that's just proprietary uh, to the committee right now uh, and the college. But this is all public uh, info that people are raising and that this new ACOG obstetrical care consensus guideline is, is going to tackle because this is a big deal. So, yes, th- there are issues here that have, that have changed. Also, uh, interpregnancy interval is a big deal because now what's odd is it's not necessarily a short IPI, although that obviously can be considered, but specifically interpregnancy interval of 10 years or more, because at that point there is data that patients basically functioned as quote, a functional prima gravita. All right. So these things changed to, to make it much more adaptive, uh, you know, advanced maternal age, uh, low socioeconomic status, uh, previous adverse pregnancy outcome, interpregnancy interval, all of these things uh, went into the, the revisions from the U.S. Preventative Service Task Force. Now that we've covered who should get it based on some kind of risk ratification, because that's on the one hand, right? That's on the right-hand side, let's say. On the left-hand side is just, man, that's too complicated. Just give it to everybody. It's universal. That is a thing. And again, we're going to touch on that in a minute. There are some who's calling for that. So it'll be interesting to see what the OB, ACOG uh, Obstetrical Care Consensus Committee says. But this current opinion does touch on that. Um, But now that we've covered that as to who should get it, a quick word about when to start it, right? We all know our recommendation from the college that's ideally start between 12 to 28 weeks with uh, ideally you want to get it in before 16 weeks. That's legit. Now, the the question is, if you start somebody at 30 weeks, is that going to do something? Uh, Likely, no. And the reason I say likely is because there's no data on that. So ACOG has a big spread. Start between 12 to 28 weeks. That's all the way up until the start of the third trimester. But ideally, started in the second trimester before 16 weeks. But not everybody agrees with that. Right, So the Royal College of OBGYN says you should start that at 12 weeks. It's more of a definitive start. Start here. Now, it's interesting because it doesn't say when it's not, not advised to start, but 12 weeks all the way until delivery, just like ACOG. The World Health Organization, again, a little bit more loosey-goosey to give people an opportunity all throughout the world, say you can start, just start before 20 weeks. I mean, you know, yes, ideally, the earlier the better. Everybody gets that. But World Health Organization says as long as you start before 20 weeks, then then we're good. You see how there's little nuances here. NICE guidelines, NICE, uh, from across the pond, they also give the 12-week recommendation, obviously, because NICE and RCOG uh, uh, drink from the same cup, all right? So ACOG, of course, 12 to 28 weeks. 
optimally before 16 weeks. So there's even a little bit of, 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 of variety and difference of flavors in when to start. It, it likely doesn't have a benefit or minimum benefit uh, after 28 weeks. That's why 28 weeks, uh, you got a long time to potentially take it, 12 to 28. After that, you probably, it's too late in the game to affect the fall of the dominoes, all right? So even though there's some flexibility here in dosage, which we're going to discuss in a minute, there's also flexibility in timing with RCOG and NICE saying 12 weeks all the way until delivery. World Health Organization says just started before 20. And then for us through ACOG, us meaning here in the U.S., it's 12 to 28 weeks, preferably with a start before 16 weeks. If you're ever asked, so what is more important, the dose of aspirin or when you start it? The answer is yes. Okay, yes, both the dose and the timing of initiation impact the effectiveness regarding preeclampsia prevention. They both have a role here. One of the biggest meta-analyses of RCTs that looked at this was in 2017. You know what's cool about this 2017 meta-analysis that was published in the Gray Journal? That title is The Role of Aspirin Dose on the Prevention of Preeclampsia and Fetal Growth Restriction, Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis, is that it's got two authors that we've talked about before, mainly having to do with uterine closure. You all remember these two names, Emmanuel Bujold and Stephanie Robergi? Remember that from Canada? We talked about them. Uh, big, big research uh, that they've done on, on hysterotomy closure. Single layer, double layer, locking, not locking. It's the same two folks along with others. How cool is that? You see? So this is why, guys, I encourage you to do go to OBGYN meetings, um, uh, look, be involved in the publication community because these names keep repeating and people are humble. They just want to share what they know. They're super approachable. Anyway, Stephanie and Emmanuel Bujol did this 2017 meta-analysis in the Gray Journal. Very short. The short answer here is dose of, of the aspirin and timing matter, right? This was all uh, randomized control trials. So it's, it's, it's a good review, and it included 45 RCTs in this eval, all right? So they looked at dosages between 50 and 150 milligrams, and they took a look at initiation under 16 weeks or over 16 weeks, all right? So short answer is you want to start early on, and it seems to be that the higher dose works better. Okay, so when aspirin was initiated at less than 16 weeks, there was a significant reduction and dose response effect in the prevention, not just of preeclampsia, but preeclampsia with severe features and fetal growth restriction with that higher dosage of aspirin being associated with greater reduction of those three things, of those three things. Okay. Preeclampsia, preeclampsia with severe features and fetal growth restriction. While that was super encouraging, it also had some kind of scary findings because Robergi found, quote, aspirin initiated at greater than 16 weeks was not associated with a risk reduction or a dose response effect for preeclampsia with severe features or fetal growth restriction. So they concluded, hey, prevention of preeclampsia, fetal growth restriction using aspirin in early pregnancy, that's legit. And it's dose response uh, uh, effective, meaning 50 is not so good, 81 is in the middle, 150 seems to do the best, all right? And they concluded, quote, low-dose aspirin initiated at greater than 16 weeks had a modest 
or no impact on the risk of preeclampsia, preeclampsia with severe features, and fetal growth restriction, end quote. So get it in as soon as possible. Now, again, it doesn't mean if you see a patient for the first time to establish prenatal care at 20 weeks that you're not going to give it because remember, it's modest to no effect. And the reason it's that hedging of the bet is because the, the studies had you know different uh, methodologies. Um, and so it's very hard to go. It just doesn't work at all, right? Because we don't want to throw anybody under the bus and, and risk them not using anything. But the short answer is, yeah, that's why ACOG says preferentially under 16 weeks, get it in early. And it seems to be that dose response issue that ACOG right now is grappling with is 81 too low because there is a dose response effect here. And over 16 weeks, while the, the data is still there, it's, it's less impressive. All right. So it, what matters, dose or timing? Yes. All right, so I had to temporarily move locations. I was getting some weird echo. So uh, if the audio is off, it's not my fault. But I, I want to stick with this idea about uh, aspirin dose and and timing because another thing that this uh, Robergi study found was kind of depressing. Okay, so listen to this. Because even though it showed there was a dose response and it worked much better when it was under 16 weeks, it actually had the best reduction in preeclampsia for preterm development of the condition, which is great. We want to prevent preterm preeclampsia. But listen to this, quote, there was no significant effect on term preeclampsia, end quote. So not that it didn't have any, any effect, just no significant effect. Ugh. So I'm not trying to say that it doesn't prevent, you know, not to use it. It doesn't hit term preeclampsia. I'm saying it hits much better. It's much more effective at preventing preterm preeclampsia, according to this study, than, than term, which is kind of sad because what's more common, preterm preeclampsia or term? Just by numbers, it's term, right? That's the much more likely because severe preeclampsia or preeclampsia with severe features early on is definitely much more morbid, but less common in incidence as compared to term. And again, this reduction in preterm preeclampsia were for those who started it before 16 weeks and had a dose of at least 100 milligrams. Again, dose and timing. But this issue of preeclampsia preterm was not just related to this meta-analysis because that was exactly what was found in a separate multi-center larged RCT called the ASPRI trial. Okay, that's clever, right? ASPRI like aspirin, uh, but that's not why it's named that. It's A-S-P-R-E, okay? So uh, this was the multi-center, multi-marker screening and randomized patient treatment with aspirin for evidence-based preeclampsia prevention. That's what ASPRI uh, stands for. In this study of over 1,500 women, once again, there was definitely a reduction in preterm preeclampsia by over 60% when aspirin was started early. We're talking about between 11 and 14 weeks and then continued uh, to at least 36 weeks gestation, all right? So you have the ASPRI trial, the Robergi study, and the Cochrane Review of 2019 also concluded the same thing. The Cochrane Review from 2019 looked at trials that individualized patient data and took a look at randomizing women before 20 weeks or those who started aspirin after 20 weeks. 
Well, what they found was that those who started before 20 weeks had a reduction in the risk of preeclampsia associated with that medication. But those who were randomized to start after 20 weeks, here it is, quote, did not seem to have a reduction in the risk of preeclampsia development, end quote. So, yes, timing does matter. ACOG does say anywhere from 12 to 28 weeks, preferably before 16 But if you really take a look at the data, it seems that most of the benefit is as early on as possible. And again, Cochrane 2019 showed, hey, man, if you started after 20 weeks, um, the risk reduction is just not impressive. It's not there. The confidence interval actually crosses one, all right, is 0.8 to 1.04. And that relative risk reduction is 0.93. That is not impressive, guys, all right? So start it early, get them in on time. That's why the importance of of prenatal care is important because the earlier that you start it and the right dose chosen are key here. We have to give the fair balance reporting here because there is data that even if you start early, it may not prevent preeclampsia. So that sounds like a complete contradiction to what we just said, right? But it's not because it's not just when you start. You got to start early, but the dose is super important. So take a look at this. There's a, there's a meta-analysis of eight trials that looked at early initiation and found, wow, if you start aspirin at under 11 weeks, actually it did not prevent preeclampsia. But oddly enough, as a side little bonus, it seemed to reduce preterm birth. We're going to get into that separate issue in a minute. But here's what this uh, current commentary from the Gray Journal says about that trial. Quote, it's important to note that of the eight included trials, none used doses of aspirin above 100 milligrams with two trials using just 100 milligrams and the remaining six trials using doses between 50 and 81 milligrams, end quote. So while there is data that, oh, if you start early, it's not going to prevent preeclampsia. Look at this meta-analysis. That's true. But you also have to look at dose. Remember we said, what's important here? Is it the dose or the timing? And the answer is yes, it is both. All right, let's take a little breather here. and we come back, let's talk about the safety of aspirin in pregnancy and other potential benefits. Is this a way to prevent preterm birth? We're going to take a look at that data next. All right, back to safety of aspirin. You got to remember that aspirin has been used for a variety of indications, including recurrent pregnancy loss in those who meet antiphospholipid antibody syndrome criteria, right? So all of that body of evidence, including other trials that have used this in the first trimester for preeclampsia prevention, show that, yeah, this thing is pretty darn safe. I know that there was some initial concerns about potentially an association with certain defects like gastroschisis. That didn't plan out in the data, right? So that's covered in this committee opinion piece. So according to these authors from October 2023, quote, recent evidence has demonstrated no increased risk for fetal intracranial hemorrhage, developmental outcomes, or congenital malformations with low-dose aspirin use during pregnancy, end quote. As we start to wrap up this review, a quick word about other potential benefits. And I said potential because things are looking that way. There's data that's pointing that direction, but some things we still need extra information for. And again, it'll be curious to see what the OB uh, obstetrical care consensus guideline says in its new guidance that's in draft right now. But it is true. I mean, there's some other benefits here, like babies just do better after delivery. 
a 2019 Cochrane review noted a 15%, that's one five, 15% reduction in the risk of perinatal and infant death. Now, the catch is, because that sounds impressive, right? And that is 15% reduction in the risk of perinatal and infant death. But if you read the entire review, it's, quote, before hospital discharge, end quote. Again, super important, but uh, how much perinatal death is there before hospital discharge anyway? I mean, I don't know. I guess I would assume that'd be pretty small. But any reduction in perinatal death, even if it's before hospital discharge, is still a plus, right? But That was kind of a weird thing. And then the second associated benefit that still needs more study, and there's investigations right now underway, taking a look to see if this is if this is legit, is that other studies have found, as a side note, this interesting possible reduction in preterm birth. So now that we don't have progesterone, is aspirin the way to do that? Now, again, we we don't have a solid answer. I'm waiting to see what ACOG says. But even in this clinical opinion piece, it states, quote, a recent Cochrane review also demonstrated a slight reduction in preterm birth before 34 weeks gestation among women given antiplatelet agents during pregnancy, end quote. And and that, of course, includes the majority of those are low-dose aspirin. And this is not just because of the reduction in preeclampsia inductions. Okay, that is a big part of it. But according to that study, it was all cause of preterm birth. Okay, so it's not just because you reduce the indications for preeclampsia. That is one factor, but it's beyond that. It's even those who were not needing induction for preeclampsia, and that's not the only study. Another publication in 2020 by Hoffman also showed a reduction in preterm birth of 62% under 34 weeks. So super important. There, there's something going on there. Uh, but but again, most of these data have come in low to medium resource countries, so it's not sure it's applicable to the U.S., where there may be other nutritional issues, other social stressors. But if anybody ever asks you, is there data that aspirin can prevent preterm birth? Yes, but it's definitely not ready for mainstream yet. And this is one of the topics that ACOG is tackling in the new OB consensus uh, guideline. So I'll be interested to see what, 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 what's come up with. We took a look at the outline. We helped vote on the outline. We submitted the articles to be included, but, but I'm not part of the authorship for that, just to disclose, all right? Uh, but I was part of the data gathering piece, as were the other members of the OB Consensus Care Committee. So it's exciting, but we don't really know uh, what that looks like. Again, this is addressed a little bit in this uh, current commentary, but I'm waiting for ACOG to to draft that. Then we have to approve it. It has to go through final vote, final edit. So it's still some time down the line. But but this issue here of preterm birth is why some are also saying, hey, just give this thing universally. Universal use has been suggested, and, and it is actually cost-effective if you look at some of the studies. The problem is, and the rebuttal is, hey, preeclampsia happens in what? maybe 8% of pregnancies. So you're exposing 92% of patients uh, to a medication that is still relatively safe, but they may not need. So that's one of the catches. So yes, there's definitely calls for universal aspirin, and there is data that show that it's cost-effective. However, because it can happen at anywhere from 8, and some studies we know that it's, it's getting higher as BMIs and obesity rates increase, maybe approaching 10%, um, that that maybe the benefit will be there. But right now, it still would leave 90% of women taking this who probably don't need it. So that's also going to be addressed in the OB uh, obstetric care consensus by the college. That is in the outline. So things that this new guidance will address is dose, just like we've covered here, initiation, 
just like we've covered here, is going to talk about a preterm birth, like we've talked about here, uh, and of course, this issue on universal use. And I do have to say this many times, this should be transparent, I am not giving away confidential information from the working group. This is all free press information that's openly available, and that's also in this new clinical opinion piece from the Gray Journal from October 2023. Before we leave this episode, I do have to clarify a couple of things because I don't want to go against college guidelines as they currently exist, although they are currently in revision and in redraft, okay? Um, Right now, stick with the 81 milligrams. I mean, that is currently the recommendation, but again, there is this ball rolling to a higher dose. Now, the problem is in the U.S., we don't really have a pre-made, pre-packaged 150 milligrams. So again, and it is a clinical expert opinion, level C opinion, but people are doing that already where they take 281 milligrams or recommend 281 milligrams for oral use. That's okay, 162 milligrams. The, the issue of low-dose aspirin still qualifies for this 150 uh, to you know, 162 milligrams. That's okay. But again, it's not current guidance. Also, currently, ACOG doesn't approve or endorse the use of low-dose aspirin for stillbirth prevention or for preterm birth. But remember that this is all part of the data that's in revision right now uh, by the OB Clinical Care Consensus Working Group. So is there data for that? Well, there is for preterm labor. There is really no good data for stillbirth. Uh, And the fetal growth restriction is only as it relates to preeclampsia, all right? So uh, questions still remain, but but look how fast things are moving. This issue on preterm birth, universal aspirin use, and the dose. Those are the big items right now, once again, that the working group is in active revision. But it's a perfect time for this Gray Journal uh, clinical review to come out because this is hot in the off the presses uh, and in the hands, in the kitchen of ACOG. All right, podcast family, what a saga, huh? I said the saga continues. I mean, thought everything was legit in 2013 and then 2014, something happened. 2017, there was another update. Practice advisory came out in 2021. We have this expert review in 2022. We have this one coming out in October 2023. And ACOG is currently revising the low-dose aspirin in pregnancy draft from the OB Clinical Care Consensus Working Group. Man, lots of stuff happening. I am in the universal aspirin group. I think it's pretty low risk. It can only help. And I'm very, very optimistic about the uh, preterm birth data. So we'll see what ACOG does with all this. Uh, Again, I I just had, in all transparency, I did have communication with uh, some of the leadership on the OB clinical care consensus group. I'm like, hey, look at this. What what great timing is this as somebody, as the authors uh, are rewriting that draft on aspirin? Take a look at this uh, clinical uh, review from October 2023. So lots of things moving quickly. And of course, we will keep you updated here in our podcast. So as always, we're thankful for you. We're glad you're part of our podcast community. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.